I love that. That's such a special moment. Well, good morning again. I'm TC, and uh, last week we started a new sermon series called Resilient, Following Jesus for Life. And we looked at this passage in the book of Acts. It was the passage when the apostles are in Samaria, and they encounter this man named Simon, who has been performing magic tricks. He's a sorcerer, practices sorcery. But he believes the message that Philip preaches to him, and he gets baptized. And when he gets baptized, you know, they hear about this all the way back in Jerusalem. They send Peter and John. And when Peter and John arrive, they're laying hands on people, and people are being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this guy, Simon, he asks the apostle Peter if he can pay him for this power. <laughs> and uh, this prompted me to talk about a magical view of faith. We talked about that. We talked about how many times we can get caught up in this conception of faith that faith is something we control, something that we wield like a tool, uh, something that's at our disposal for our purposes. And a person with uh, a magical view of faith can, can often come under condemnation when, when they in, encounter hard times or suffering. They can feel like, this is because I don't have enough faith. And people get told that. People get told, this is because you don't have enough faith. And this quick fix, kind of utilitarian concept of faith um, is the opposite of what the Bible presents as faith, which we talked about was covenant. Remember that? Covenantal faith. Covenant is this relationship of trust that we enter into uh, with God through Jesus and the Spirit. And this biblical paradigm of covenant produces resiliency in our faith because we recognized, remember we recognized that God cuts covenant with us. And God is going to remain faithful to God's covenant even when we fail God. And that, that means that it's not all up to us. It means that uh, faith is not in our hands. It's not a tool that we wield. It's a relationship of trust that we, that we walk with God. And God's going to be faithful to us. So learning biblical paradigms like this is important for resilience. Um, but I also said last week that resilience is not something that you're born with. It's not something that's inherent, something that you either have or don't have. Resilience, research has found, is something that you are equipped with by your community. There was a study done uh, last year of Syrian youth who had been displaced because of war. These are refugees. Syrian youth, and it concluded that their resilience, the resilience that they exhibited in their lives, was a collective and social strength. It was something that they derived from friendships and community. It's a powerful, powerful concept there. So I was thinking about all, all this when I was planning the sermon series, but I still prepared to teach three of these mostly conceptual sermons, mostly like about the way that we think and, um, and wrong ways that we think sometimes. And, and I still think that that's important. We should think about these concepts. But I'm convinced now that what goes on our, in our heads is not primarily what produces resiliency. This past week, I realized that I'd gone about planning this series all wrong. 
and so I'm going to make a U-turn in the middle. <laughs> I, I spent the last week in Chicago at this conference. It's the, uh, it's the annual pastor's conference of the ECC. That's the denomination I, I belong to, this church belongs to. And every time I go to this conference, I am just floored. I'm not floored by some kind of like big fancy programming or, or you know, the preachers, the like keynote speakers. What I'm floored by is the sense of community that I get, the sense of, of uh, family. It really feels like a family reunion every time I go. And um, there's a picture of some, some of the, the men that um, I hung out with all week, uh, men who over the years have spoken into my life, men who have walked with me, um, given me wise counsel, been there for me in some of the most difficult, challenging um, seasons of my life. Uh, up there in the left, uh, up there in the left-hand corner is uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Michael Carrion. Uh, I call him the Bishop of the Bronx. Uh, he's planted something like six churches in the Bronx, and uh, he's just an incredible um, prophet, incredible prophetic gift. Uh, speaks into my life and encourages me, and we just hang out and laugh, laugh so much, and uh, and cry. And um, over there on the right is uh, is Pastor Marco Ambrise. Marco Ambrise is the second pastor that they've had at First Covenant Oakland in like 25 years. They had like the same pastor for a really long time. He's been there two years, but he, that's how gifted he is. Uh, First Covenant Oakland is a flagship covenant church. It's just been there, you know, 150 years, and super diverse, super multi-ethnic, and um, man, he's just, he just loved on me, wrapped his arms around me, prayed for me, and um, what I'm saying is this. This past week, it hit me like a ton of bricks. If my Christian faith has any resiliency it's not because I have thought all the right things and have not thought the wrong things. If my Christian faith has resiliency, it's because people of God have showed up for me in times of crisis. They have sat with me. They have cried with me. They have laughed with me. They've given me wise counsel. They have walked with me and demonstrated God's love to me. That, has, that is the primary way that resiliency has been formed in my life. It's through the community. It's through the people of God. So we're going to look at a passage today from the New Testament that we set up in the, in the scripture reading. Um, but before we do that, let's pray. Let's pray that God would speak to us uh, through the word this morning and, and by his spirit. Faithful God, God of covenant, God who cuts covenant with us and enters into a relationship of trust with us, even knowing that we will fail you. I pray that you would speak to us today through your word and by your spirit. May we be caught up in a vision of resiliency that isn't self-reliant, but is based on the work of your spirit in and through your people. Open our eyes to see how you work through our imperfect lives to incarnate your perfect love. Open our eyes to see how becoming a community that produces resilient faith in one another is what you've called us to do and what you're empowering us to do. 
pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, we're going to look at this passage in the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, which we set up in, uh, in the scripture reading. The context of this is what we heard in the scripture reading from Acts 17. Paul, uh, in the first century, is empowered by the Holy Spirit to uh, spread the Jesus movement around the Roman Empire. He comes to uh, Thessalonica, and in Thessalonica, a mob is formed. They say, these men have turned the world upside down. That's a, that's a good resume. <laughs> I want that resume someday. Somebody to say, TC turned the world upside down. So they said, Paul's turned the world upside down. They're defying Caesar's decrees, saying there's another king, one named Jesus, right? So they formed a mob, and they ran him out of town. Well, that didn't stop a church from being formed in Thessalonica, because later, Paul writes to this church. And so we're going to read from the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter, starting at uh, chapter 2, starting in chapter 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without res results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know that we never used flattery, nor do we put on masks to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, nor from you or anyone else, even though as apostles we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Verse 8, or ver verse 7b. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. There's something in this passage that grips me, something that I think is so critical for us to see this morning and so critical for us to get in our spirits. Paul doesn't just preach the gospel of Jesus to the Thessalonians. He embodies the message. He shares his life with them as family. Did you hear those family metaphors? He says, we were like young children among you. We were like nursing mothers among you. We cared for you like a father cares for his own son. This complete stranger who comes from another city and who not that long ago was a persecutor of the church, 
and would have arrested them and would have dragged them to jail and possibly killed them, right? He comes among them humbly and says, we were delighted to share our lives with you. That's how much we cared for you. And all because Paul encountered Jesus and Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And he wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting God's people, right? Persecuting Christians. So he's like, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then he goes to this town, and a disciple named Ananias calls him Brother Saul, the murderer. The man who was famous for persecuting Christians calls him Brother Saul, and the scales fell from his eyes. He saw that the people of God, the body of Christ, are a family. And now he belongs to that family. And now he's on a mission to invite everybody into that family. He said, I was delighted to share my life with you, complete strangers, who I would have killed a few years earlier. Now I'm among you like a, like a, like a child, and I love you like a father. This past week at Midwinter, all of this hit me so hard. I was just weepy. I was weepy. I was walking around like, <laughs> just weepy. The primary reason why my faith has lasted, why I'm still a Christian through all the hard times is because people, the people of God, the family of God shared their life with me. It's because of this, this experience that Paul describes here, this I'm going to call it life on life. Family. Not social club show up at a service family. I'm talking about people have shared their lives with me, opened up their homes to me, opened up their families to me. Some of you know my story, but probably many of you don't. I, I grew up the only child of a schizophrenic single mom. And... We didn't have a close relationship, as you can imagine. I felt all alone in the world. I felt like I didn't have parents. Never knew my biological father. My mom was like a zombie on Haldol and lithium. And by the time I was 10, I was experimenting with drugs, drinking alcohol. When I was 11 and 12, I was gang-affiliated. And when I was 13, I was gang-initiated and involved, fully involved, lived a criminal lifestyle for several years. And when I was 16, I had two close calls with death <laughs> in a very relatively short period of time. I'd been around a lot of violence. I'd seen a lot of violence, been traumatized by it, but it had never really knocked on my door until I was 16. When I was 16, I got shot at for the first time. And you know, you know how they say like your life flashes before your eyes, shortly, shortly before, you, before you die? My life flashed before my eyes. And basically, it was like not a great picture. It was like, I'm going to die at 16 in this parking lot of McDonald's. Why? For a color? For these guys I barely know? And I didn't die. And I felt like, okay, what am I living for? Am I living for this? And then a week, 10 days later, I drove drunk. And I totaled my car in a car accident. It was after an ice storm. I lost control of my car. I was inebriated. 
slammed into a telephone pole, should have flown through the windshield and died. But I didn't. I don't know why. But that week, I had some thoughts. <laughs> I had to process my life. What am I living for? What is my life all about? And that was the week that I got a phone call from an old friend who invited me to a church to see him get baptized. Now, I didn't go to church. I was not interested in going to church. But he urged me to go. And I, some, for some reason, I accepted. So I went to this Pentecostal church. Never been to a Pentecostal church before. Wasn't interested in going to a Pentecostal church at all. But I went. And that night, the Holy Spirit gripped my heart. The pastor spoke a word, a timely word, that hit me right here. And I was, I was struck, and I was convicted, and I responded, and I was baptized on the spot. And, and it, it's absolutely true that God broke into my life that, that day. It's absolutely true that I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, but that's not why my faith stuck. You hear what I'm saying? People have those experiences all the time. Mountaintop experiences or whatever you want to call them. Encounters with God, and then they go right back to their old lifestyle, don't they? That could have been me. Easily. Do you want to know why my faith was so resilient? Why I stuck? Why I've been a Christian ever since? It's because that church became my family. My real family. Like, I didn't have family. They treated me like I was their lost son. Come home. They didn't see a, a dangerous drug dealer, gang member kid. They saw a lost kid that needed family. And I'm going to try not to cry, but that, that means something to me. That meant everything to me. I asked you earlier to talk about somebody who's demonstrated God's love to you. This is Terry Austria. Terry Austria has demonstrated God's love to me. He took me under his wing when I was 17. And he showed me that faith was real. You know what I mean? He's not a perfect guy at all. He's actually really cynical. Juice knows him. He's actually a really cynical guy, and he wrestles with depression. But you know what he showed me? That you can walk this life. You can do this. You can be a follower of Jesus. He wasn't perfect. But he opened his heart to me, opened his life to me, and brought me in. And I think of him as a spiritual father. I call him Uncle Terry because he changed my spiritual diapers and taught me to walk, taught me to pray, taught me to read the Bible. Like, hey, open your Bible to the Psalms and read these out loud for a year. After Hurricane Katrina displaced us and we discovered that we were suddenly homeless, um, we somehow, I'm skipping over a lot, so we somehow ended up in Boston, okay? There's a whole story about that, but I don't have time. But we ended up in Boston and I was a first-year seminary student at Gordon-Conwell, and there was a center in the school for um, youth workers, and I was doing youth work. 
So uh, I went in and met the director. The director's name is Matt Gibson. That's Matt Gibson in the middle. And I asked Matt Gibson to mentor me. <laughs> I've been weepy all week. It's crazy. Matt Gibson still called. This was 2006. Matt Gibson calls me every week. <laughs> he calls me every week. I've lived in L.A. since then, and now I live in St. Paul. He doesn't care. You know, he calls me every week to check, on, check in on me, prays with me, gives me wise counsel. Resiliency does not matter. It does not matter where you come from. It does not matter what neighborhood you grew up in. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter if you come from a stable family or an unstable family. That's not what produces resiliency. What produces resiliency is when you are equipped with resiliency by your community. I used to teach this book. Uh, I used to teach from this book called The Other Westmore. Anybody ever heard of The Other Westmore? This is a fantastic book. The Other Westmore is about two young men who were born blocks away from each other in, in Baltimore. Blocks. And, and within a year of each other. Same age, same neighborhood, same skin color. And they both had difficult childhoods. It says, it says in the back of the book, they both hung out on street corners with their crews, is what it says, and ran from the police. I, I, that's what the book says, okay. So one of them grew up to be a Rhodes Scholar. And a White House fellow, which apparently is a thing. I don't know what that means, but it's a big deal. And a business leader. The other one is serving a life sentence for murder. And when the author of the book found out there was a guy with his name from his neighborhood, who's his age, serving a life sentence for murder, he said, I got to find out why. So he went and did, like, extensive interviews with the other Westmore. And that's what the book is all about. And he talks about in the book inflection points. That's what he calls them. Moments, cru critical moments in his journey where he could have gone this way or he could have gone that way. And his path would have been similar to the other Westmore. But instead, he, he, he took a different path. And every single one of those inflection points, guess what it involves? Community. Mentors. People who sat with him. People who gave him wise counsel. People who checked in on him. People who made sure that he was okay. That's what made the difference. Life on life, sharing of our lives with one another is what equips us with resiliency to keep going in this thing we call faith. It's not just head knowledge. I love head knowledge. If you know me, I'm a theology nerd. I could do 10 weeks of these conceptual sermons about the way we think and the wrong ways we think, but I got convicted this week that that's not, what's, that's not what's ultimately produced resiliency in my life. It's been the family of God. And here's why this matters. Here's why I'm saying all this. I'm not saying all this, uh, you know, just for my own sake. I'm saying this because if we exist, if we truly exist as a church to be a new people rooted in Christ, who passionately love God and purposefully seek the renewal of our city, we've got to be that family for somebody. We've got to be 
that community that equips somebody with the resiliency that they can live a life of faith. We've got to be that church that sees a kid come in and does not see the dangerous gang member, but sees the lost son coming home. We've got to be that church. We've got to be the kind of church that sees a a dysfunctional family as a family that we can wrap our arms around and be there for them in times of crisis. Life on life sharing. We've got to be willing to open our hearts and our homes and our, our very lives to people the way that Paul did for the Thessalonians. We say that we're a community of misfits. Do we mean that? Do we really mean that? Because some misfits don't fit even where they call themselves a community of misfits. Am I, am I preaching? It was, got quiet. It got quiet all of a sudden. No, are we really, really a community of misfits? And we're ready. We're ready to accept people who may, who may be difficult to love. I was difficult to love. Ask Terry. I quit on Terry multiple times. He did, he did things that rubbed me the wrong way, said something I didn't like, and I quit. I'm out of here. I'm going back to my old life. You know what he did? He was there for me. He stayed there for me. He didn't always chase after me, but he was there for me. This is, this is all well and good in theory. We could talk about it, but what happens when the rubber meets the road? What happens when we get an influx of people that are not like you? Are we going to be like Paul, and are we going to be like young children among them, and are we going to love them and delight to share our lives with them? That's the question we have to ask ourselves if we're serious about this thing. If we're not serious about this thing, let's pack it up and go home. Am I wrong? I'm not here to play church. If, if the church that I walked in to at 16 years old was playing church, I wouldn't be here today. I'd probably be dead or in prison. So I'm not here to play church. If we're not serious about this thing, let's go home. I don't want to sing songs and listen to me, listen to me myself talk. Our faith is only going to be resilient, as resilient, as we are willing to create spiritual family here for people that don't have it and for each other. Our faith is only going to be as resilient as we are willing to open up our lives and be transparent and vulnerable with people. Guess what? Everybody already knows you're not perfect. Why are you hiding it, right? Why hide it? Terry didn't hide it from me. I remember the first time I heard Terry cuss. I was like, pastors cuss? He said, what, you think I'm perfect? Our faith is only going to be as resilient as we are willing to be real about our flaws, our failures, our fears, and show up anyways. As we move forward, and we are going to move forward, and and we're on this mission, singles are going to walk through that door, couples are going to walk through that door, families are going to walk through that door, Anybody that God sends us is going to walk that door. Are we the kind of community that's going, to make, that's going to produce resiliency in those people? The way that the people of God, the family of God has produced resiliency in my life. That's why I love, I love, I think it's my favorite psalm 
first from the Psalms. Psalm 68, 5 and 6. God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God sets the lonely in families. That's my favorite. If we are living into that reality, we are going to be the father to the fatherless. We are going to be a community that embraces folks who need spiritual family. So I want to ask you to do two things. I want to ask you to pray for yourself, to prepare your hearts. We each have to do some, some work, individually and collectively, to prepare ourselves. You know yourself, and you know that you're going to get tired, you're going to get grumpy, you're going to get impatient. You're going to need to rely on the Holy Spirit to make you that, that humble person who's like a child among us right? Putting our needs second and putting others' needs first. That, that takes work. We're going to have to pray to be that kind of community. And then collectively, we need to pray that God would send those families, send those singles, send those couples, the misfits, if we're serious. And then secondly, I want to ask you to sign up for the, the retreat this Saturday. This is where we do this visioning work together. This Saturday at my house, we're going to have a retreat called One Church, Many Gifts, and it's part two. And at part two, we're going to get together and we're going to dream. What does it look like to be a community of misfits? How do we do that? And what's my role in that? How do I participate in that? How has God wired me and gifted me and called me to participate in this thing we call Roots Covenant Church? A community for those who feel like they don't have community. A family for those who don't have family. What's my part in that? You can RSVP on the website. I sent out an email that has an RSVP, and I want you to do that. I'll close with this. I could have easily spent a whole series, sermon series, giving you techniques, ways of thinking, how to make your faith resilient. But what I realized this week is that's not how my faith has been made resilient. My faith has been made resilient by people like you. People who've showed up for me when I needed it. And so what we, what we should focus on is how can we do that for others? And when you put others before yourself, that produces resiliency in you. I can keep going when I've helped you keep going. And then I can keep going when you help me keep going, and we help each other keep going. That's what produces resiliency. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we know we can't do this on our own. We know that this, this calling to live lives worthy of your kingdom, the kingdom into which you've called us, just like you said to Paul, we know that we can't do that in our own strength. We know we need your Holy Spirit. So God, we are asking for your Holy Spirit to come among us, to be in us and through us and with us. Spirit, empower us to be the kind of church, the kind of community that can wrap its arms around a kid like me when I was 16. To be the kind of community that produces and equips others with resiliency. 
with the type of faith that keeps going in, in, the, in the midst of and in, in the face of opposition and hardship and suffering. Help us to be the kind of people that show up for one another, that sit with one another in the hard times. Maybe just sit there in silence and just love each other. Pray for one another. Open our hearts to one another. Open our lives to one another. Open our homes to one another. God, we don't want to play church. We want to be real. Help us to, to recognize those things that are holding us back. And purge us of all the fear. Purge us of all the anxiety. Anything. Insecurity. Perfectionism. God, purge us so that we can be your people who love and care and delight, with, delight to share our lives with others. We need your help, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Uh, oh, they're already up here. I was going to invite them up. Um, this is a time of